This is an ABC podcast. Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers with your gumbo. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hey, how you going? Killy Johnson here with you for Countrywide. Coming up in the next half hour, you'll hear about the impact Russia's war over Ukraine is having on grain and food prices. The real implications will only be felt in three months' time because that is a time when Ukraine will harvest once again, usually at the point in time where everybody in the world looks at Ukraine and Russia to ship most of the grain to the world market. And that is, I think, where a lot of the disappointment will hit the market. And is farming livestock and eating meat destroying the planet? Stay tuned to find out. But first, from potato bake to mashed potato to potato chips, the potato is an iconic veggie loved by Aussies. But growers are at a crisis point, with soaring input costs raising serious questions about the future viability of the crop. Luke Radford spoke with Tasmanian-based farmers Michael Hayes and John Williams ahead of the upcoming season to discuss those challenges and what they can do about it. Rising costs, that's that's the immediate one but then quality issues in potatoes pink rot's a big issue Um, and then we're having climatic issues big rain events and um, that's hindering planting harvesting main issues but there's a whole lot of them and that's yeah it is coming to a bit of a, a crisis point you mentioned input costs there why is it that that's specifically bad for potatoes high inputs very potatoes are high input crop and uh because we need a mar- to get our margins, we need higher yields, and higher yields mean higher input costs, like higher, more, more volumes of inputs to get those higher yields. And because fertilisers rising, diesels rising, as we all know, just input costs either. It's uh, costs because land prices have yep. jumped by a third. Insurance, it's it's uh, labour. They're all up, and they're all contributing to 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 the bottom line. You mentioned climactic events as well. Yeah, big rain events. So, and then yeah, that's causing that's probably bringing on rot, but also hindering planting and and harvesting and and costing costing har- a lot of high cost in harvesting. Another one just came to me is um, labour labour shortage for harvesting. That's a that's another issue. Labour shortage for farmers um, generally. Well, a genuine question for both of you. You're fairly heavily indexed on the potatoes, as you mentioned, not just with um, growing them, but also with involvement in harvesting contract and the like. Looking at the state of the industry right now, how do you feel? Oh, no, I think it's... Uh, potatoes were once an attractive option, but now there's a lot of other attractive um, options, and, and I don't think potatoes are, are up there. They're just not competitive. Yeah, look, you never change for the sake of change or to chase the dollar, but unfortunately the margins on a per hectare basis with the risk factor of the high input costs, potatoes are a bit on the nose. I think the risk factor is nearly doubling in the costs of input costs on the last season. So you've sort of got to really look at what you what you want to do. You know, you can grow a paddock of wheat and you've got a lot less risks without that sort of outlay. And... Um, I think that, uh, yeah, like Michael said, it's the climatic, we've had a couple of years of what we'd, we'd say, 
we'd say we've had a couple of years where we've had an easterly rain that's dumped large amount of rain and that is what causes a lot of rot in potatoes and causes a lot of issues with quality. Potato growers John Williams from Ledgewood and Michael Hayes from Ringaruma speaking there with Luke Radford. Russia's war over Ukraine will push grain and food prices up for at least a year, Rabobank has warned, with dire outcomes for the world's hungriest nations. Stefan Vogel, Rabobank's general manager of research in Australia, says Ukrainian farmers will struggle to harvest crops or grow a crop next year and ship any out of ports like Odessa. He told Michael Condon that grain production in other countries is down as well, and that paints a scary picture for food security globally. Imagine three months ago when the war started, um, we were already well into the export season there. So it means there was still a little bit of grain in the country, especially corn, but also some wheat and some barley and some canola. But the, the real implications will only be felt in three months' time because that is a time when Ukraine will harvest once again and will be usually at the point in time where everybody in the world looks at Ukraine and Russia to ship most of the grain to the world market. And that is, I think, where a lot of the disappointment will hit the market. There will be very limited volumes coming out of Ukraine. And it's still a big question mark how much you get out of Russia. We assume Russia will, as one of those big wheat exporters in the world, will be able to ship most of its grain, but probably not as smooth as usual. So uh, vessels you send to the regions are either uninsured or the premiums are very high. And it is a bit dry still in Germany and in France, the key grain powerhouses of the European Union. And if you look into the United States, it's dry on the one side in the the winter wheat belt there uh, around Texas and Oklahoma. On the other side, it's still a little wet up and cool up in the northern spring wheat belt. So there are a lot of concerns. And clearly what drove us here in the last few days significantly higher is now the announcement out of uh, India which said, well, we're banning exports. Clearly, the government in India is worried about food prices for a billion-plus people in the country and is trying to keep that under control by letting only few volumes out of the country and with that, uh, press the market down in the domestic market in India. And in terms of Ukraine, it seems as though there's stocks there in Ukraine, but apparently the Russians have been trying to get hold of it and steal it. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't have any first-hand insights on that as, as our company is not active in Ukraine. However, um, what you can see and in, in, in read in the news is clearly a lot of those headlines that uh, grain is shipped out by Russian, be it soldiers or other way uh, to, to neighboring ports. Um, with that, I think you will see some of those headlines probably continuing throughout the season. But the big problem of Ukrainian grain is basically also all of the ports are closed. So... The key export ports are not so much on the eastern side of Ukraine, but they are on the southern side of Ukraine, so Odessa, uh, Nikolaev, and and so on. So those are the really important export ports. And if you look, last year the country exported roughly 70 million metric tons of grains, which is twice the volume Australia needs to move this year in this record season. So it's a, a heck of a lot of grain trying to find its way to the market. And if you're taking all those port uh, exports away and you basically force the export market to find a way to move it by rail and by road, you are down significantly in volumes. And that is what we're experiencing right now. So obviously that's why we're seeing this boom in in commodity prices for wheat, canola, and a whole range of other grains as well. Yeah, that is the one side of it. Clearly that uh, on the one side, the importers of the world try to get more and more volumes out of those countries that still have uh, available volumes. 
Um, but in some regions, it's either the problem that there is nothing at, at right now anymore in, in shelves that you can easily ship out, or in countries like Australia, where the logistics are already full because we had this very big crop, uh, the logistics don't allow to export much more than, than we anyway would have despite these high prices. Stefan Vogel from Rabobank speaking with Michael Condon. With major livestock diseases like lumpy skin and foot and mouth disease inching closer, vets have never been more in demand. So what's it like being a young vet in regional Australia? Brianna Carr is a 24-year-old vet who graduated last year and is working in a clinic at Myrtleford in Victoria. She told Annie Brown about her experience in the industry. Definitely, uh, I've been lucky enough with, with having two two different clinics now that had a, a sort of a large array of vets and, and great vet nurses to support me. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, some people aren't sort of as lucky as what I've been and, and you've got smaller vet clinics and and especially in regional areas, it's tough to then have that big support network. And the fact that people are leaving the industry and things at the moment due to burnout and a whole heap of different other reasons then then makes it even more difficult for some new grads. The Australian Veterinary Association has said that they're having trouble retaining younger veterinarians in the industry, saying, you know, people about five or ten years out of graduating are, yeah, burning out, like you said, and and leaving the industry. Does that sort of ring true to your experience? Are you seeing things like that? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, certainly, you know, we're, we're not dealing with, you know, just a sort of an inanimate object here at the moment. We're, we're dealing with, you know, someone's, you know, loved pet or someone's, you know, makes their li- livelihood off their livestock. So it's just that sort of added emotional sort of, you know, connection and things that then make it just a really difficult industry to work in at times. I mean, it's not like sort of a, a job where it's nine to five, how you go home and you don't have to really think about it too much at the end of the day. Um, you, you do find because, you know, a lot of people that are selected to go into vet science are, are super passionate and we love helping animals and love helping people. So unfortunately, that then selects for people who want to, you know, pour more of their energy and time in and into, you know, solving people's, you know, problems with their animals and things. And then, then it sort of becomes that vicious cycle where if we, you know, invest all of our time and all of our energy into that, we're not really having a great work-life balance. Are you concerned to hear stories about that, you know, that you're, Australia is sort of seeing a veterinary shortage rurally and regionally and that vets are getting out of the industry after only five or ten years? Is that concerning for you to hear that? Yeah, it is concerning because especially as someone who's starting out, I mean, they've got, you know, even, you know, five years, you know, worth of knowledge compared to my sort of not even a year yet. I mean, it's amazing what you learn during that time. And so it's sad because it means we're actually losing all that knowledge and expertise. And then, you know, we're sort of starting from from the ground up and trying to work instead of, you know, having that extra little bit of advantage and learning from those peers that have you know, got such a such a wealth of knowledge too. So it is really concerning. And I mean, the fact that we've got a vet shortage when you're a new grad is, is sort of nice because it means you sort of have, have a, you know, wide array of places you can go and work. But um, at the same time, it's it's really scary because, you know, what, what's going to happen? Are we going to keep sort of trending to the point where we, like, we don't have any vets at all? Um, it's, it's, yeah, it's really scary stuff. From your perspective as a vet, what are some of the things that could be done differently to maybe help incentivize vets to to stay on or even recruit more people into the industry? Yeah, it's it's a really really tough problem, and I, I don't think we're we're sort of going to solve it overnight. I don't I don't even know if we'll get to the point where we will solve it. I mean, 
certainly we might be able to minimise it a little bit. I, I just wish that we had some Medicare or something for pets because a, a lot of the time people are pretty cost sort of conscious and, and know that, you know, some, some of these services that we offer um, are expensive and uh, it's good. Some people are taking up sort of insurance options and things now, but it's it's very, very difficult to sort of comment on the business side of it too because unfortunately, um, I don't know if we are going to be able to change it because because you've got you've got to be a business at the end of the day so it's got to be you know viable and you've got to employ staff and you've got to pay staff and do all that sort of thing and then yeah you can't be charging astronomical amounts of money so it's a really difficult situation and I don't know whether you know maybe a government incentive or something to to go regional or you know to get sort of more vets through would would be able to work. I know there's there's sort of a lot of other other issues and things on, so I don't know how sort of committed anyone is to solving the vet shortage at the moment. Certainly the AVA are looking into it and trying to do the best that they can, but without sort of, you know, government support or something else, then it's really going to be a, quite a struggle to, to fill that gap. Brianna Carr, vet graduate from North East Victoria, speaking to Annie Brown. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide. The Politics of Food and Farming. The authors of a new book looking at the impact of food production on the environment are calling for a massive cut to meat consumption in Australia. Professor Dora Marinova is an expert in sustainability at the Curtin University. She told David Clawton that agriculture is responsible for the loss of two-thirds of the planet's wildlife over the last 50 years due to land clearing. There is a strong connection because of the land clearing, um, the clearing of native vegetation, uh, and that's triggered mainly by the fact that we need the land either for grazing of livestock or alternatively to produce feed for livestock. So that's a very inefficient, or I would even say irrational way of feeding population because rather than growing the grain and the foods that we need directly for human consumption, what we are doing, we are um, growing feed and grains that are fed to the animals, to the livestock animals, and then we're eating these animals. And in the case of beef, it takes about 38 calories fed to the animal to eat, uh, to produce one calorie for human consumption. So that's very, very inefficient. And beef is particularly inefficient. It's better when we look at poultry, it's probably 10 to 1, but still this is not a wise way to use uh, the planet. And to be able to uh, produce all this feed uh, and also to allow animals to graze, we're destroying some of the most precious resources, including the rainforest, the savannas in Brazil, as well as in Australia, we're clearing massive areas of native vegetation. How bad do you think Australian agriculture is compared to the rest of the world? Because a lot of work is being done here to try and reduce the impact of agriculture. Uh, Yes, we are looking at some innovative solutions such as uh, seaweed um, and uh, which can impact Uh, The other thing that we are also looking at is regenerative agriculture, um, which um, does, uh, allows different way of using the land by rotating on a smaller, on a smaller section, 
All these are good ideas and they will have a positive impact on the environment. However, what is really uh, impossible is to maintain the current levels of high levels of consumption. And Australia has one of the highest in the world um, with these new methods. Um, so consumption of by, beef, you mean, or of, of, of livestock? Yeah, consumption. Uh, we we have yeah we have the highest in beef we have also we are very close to one of the highest in terms of overall meat consumption. What we have noticed in Australia lately is that there is a shift with increasing awareness about climate change. There is a shift towards uh, preferences for poultry. Um, so beef has decrease but meat consumption has increased overall because people are shifting to poultry which has a low environmental impact there are other problems associated with poultry which are related to the use of antibiotics but the environmental impact is smaller you're suggesting flexitarianism a diet that's comprised mainly of plant-based foods but doesn't cut out any food group necessarily. How big a change do you think is required in the diets of Australians to make that effective? Um, there was a report produced by the Eat Lancet Commission two years ago, three years ago now, uh, which suggested that Australians needed to cut 80 to 90% of our meat consumption. That's the a big Eat number. Lancet it's a huge number. And, and what is even uh, very particular about Australia is that we associate meat consumption in our culture with strength, with masculinity, with expression of um, our cultural identity, which is not the case in many other places around the world. So such a transition in Australia will be much more difficult than, for example, countries such as China, where um, there is a long transition uh, addition in using tofu-based uh, proteins. Well, we, we, we are so addicted to meat that for us it has to be a conscientious decision by the consumer uh, to cut so much of, um, of their meat consumption. So, so what, what I think is that there is hope, particularly uh, with the young people who have been so proactive around climate change, with uh, climate strikes, and uh, with their increasing awareness about um, the environmental problems that uh, we, they will inherit, uh, they are willing to uh, reduce their, their meat consumption. Professor Dora Marinova from Curtin University talking about her book, Food in a Planetary Emergency. And Meat and Livestock Australia have attacked the authors of the book, describing the work as lazy and out of date. CEO Jason Strong told David Clawton that land clearing has been a big issue in Australia and Brazil, but the beef industry here has reversed that trend, and people are working on turning things around in the Amazon as well. Well, it's incredibly lazy and it's incredibly irresponsible. So there's arguments about the Brazilian rainforest, absolutely. And we know the destruction of the rainforest is terrible. Um, and there's a whole bunch of people putting massive efforts into doing something about that in Brazil. They also forget that a whole bunch of that deforestation is for soybeans. And it's not for soybeans for cattle, it's for soybeans for humans. So, so yes, it's bad, but people are trying to do something about it. And it's not actually all about cattle. But more to the point, it's completely different to Australia. So, so total woody vegetation in Australia between 1991 and 2019 has actually increased. Now, that's not deforestation, that's reforesting. It's maintaining and improving 
deforestation of our country. What, what are you <clears> talking about there? Um, talk about sustainable ag, but even more broadly, uh, it's not clearing land and it's how we manage um, the woody vegetation that we have, so trees and, and regrowth. So it's not clearing that land in the same way that it's been cleared before and managing the regrowth in a sustainable way. Pretty marginal but, though, isn't it? Is that making much of a difference? It is making a difference, yeah, because by stopping doing something which was a significant contributor um, makes a huge difference. But more, more to the point, the, the land that is being used for um, livestock production particularly is being used in a sustainable way. So what we're knowing or learning about soil carbon sequestration, for example, so using uh, trees to capture carbon, that's, that's very important, but also uh, as we you know, increase the productivity of our livestock um, land area, the, uh, the ability of fast-growing subtropical pastures, for example, to sequester carbon is also really significant. So we end up with the livestock sector not only being a fantastic source of high-quality food and protein, but also contributing to um, improving the planet as well. But it's hard to dispute this figure that they give about the impact of agriculture on wildlife across the planet. They're saying it's agriculture is responsible for the loss of two-thirds of the planet's wildlife over the last 50 years. There, there have been massive changes to the, to the landscape and that, that when we do have the highest extinction of species rate in the world in Australia. So, you know, those, those numbers are really scary, aren't they? You know, and, we, and we don't want to be losing species. But, but this is a broader issue about all of us knowing more about how we sustainably support uh, biodiversity in a range of species. And it's fine to quote those numbers, but what they should also do is look at who's making the most progress in solving the problem, and it's the agriculture sector that's doing that. How confident are you that the meat industry, in particular agriculture more broadly, can help bring back or preserve the species that remain on the planet? 100% confident. But they're one of the only sectors that can. So, so many of the arguments that get thrown at the red meat sector, when they talk about biodiversity, for example, you know, being able to utilise and regenerate land through the interaction of livestock and you know, soil and pastures is one of the most productive and effective ways to you know, promote and improve biodiversity. CEO of MLA, Jason Strong. Imagine pallet after pallet of gorgeous, high-quality dyed yarn being buried in a big pit. That was the fate that awaited a stash of wool at one of the mills in northern Italy, which went belly up in the pandemic. However, an Australian mill saw that one nation's trash could be another's woolen treasure. Executive Director of Waverley Mill, based in Longford, Tasmania, David Farley, explained it wasn't all smooth sailing. So what have we got in front of us? Well, these are um, uh, what we call the upcycle product. This, these are all constructed out of uh, yarn that we're able to purchase out of Italy at the start of the, of the COVID pandemic. And a lot of mills in Italy were hit very hard and ended up in financial duress uh, and liquidated stockpiles. But one of the stockpiles we got hold of was one that was headed for landfill and it was packed, ready to go. We looked at it, we were able to buy it at a good price. We bought it up, up country, right in the middle of Italy, arranged its transport out, brought it down to Melbourne, re reorganised it, brought it onto the mill. We went through fibre testing it, text testing it, and then set it up into production runs. And it's been enormously successful, both from a manufacturing perspective, but the consumer demand for it has been overwhelming. And as you can see here, the style of product, the feel of the product, 
uh, it's quite a complementary range to what we do both in recycling and we call this upcycling taking advantage of something that was literally destined for landfill, prepared for landfill, and turned it either into throws and blankets. So how much processing went into these? Obviously, you've had to stick it on the mill and then turn it into a blanket, but when it came in its its raw form, was there much that you had to do with it before it was ready to roll with? Uh, first of all, a little powerful amount of data collection because it came of, with no data to it, so we had to establish what it was, what fibres it was, where its natural fibre content was, what uh, what text weight it was and then organise it in a manner where we could put it into production runs and then from those production runs is ultimately putting it through the, through the creel, through the reed, onto the warp, into the weft, through the weaving machines, through the, the, the milling and then ultimately hydro, stenting, raising into what's called greyish cloth and then greyish cloth then comes into us here in the finishing room where we are where it's cut, seamed and labelled into finished product. Well, someone who knows not much about the wool processing process, I feel like I've just learnt the whole thing from start to finish. Well, this, as I said earlier, this is the last standing vertically integrated textile mill in Australia. So not only have we got the physical assets, we've got the skills-based assets as well. We'll keep talking on the recycling, but why don't we go for a walk back to the um, stockpile where all of that is sitting around. So this is the stockpile of all the wool that's come in from that mill initially. So tell me, was it initially that you had looked at this kind of topic before the pandemic kicked off, or did that then kick off the whole the process? No, we're, we're, um, our, our ethos is trying to be as sustainable and recyclable in our business models. And the reality is there's a powerful amount of textile product where the textile, the fibres are still good, that are going to landfill. And when we saw the opportunity, because we had been recycling and blending, we saw this opportunity to uh, seize a large piece of inventory that we knew we had the skills and we knew what to do with it. And that big board over here, you can see each one of these pallets and each one of the cones is broken down into a sample. And on that sample card, we'll have what is the fibre mix in it, It'll have what is the text in it, and it'll tell you exactly where it's located in the in the warehouse. And then from there, the uh, production team then, with the designers, are able to go to those yarns and construct products in a plan that gets passed over to manufacturing, and we end up with the finished product that you saw in there. So how frequently do opportunities like this come up where you get big stockpiles of yarn that are going to go in the bin? Was this just the pandemic, or does it happen all the time? Uh, well, the pandemic stimulated it. Uh, put it there but large production mills always have what's called end of run and uh, it was taking advantage of that end of run we, we were just fortunate that it fitted with our our capacity it fitted with our skills base and it fitted nicely with the price we were able to acquire it at uh, and bring it into the country and it also fitted with our refurbishment program especially in our yarn making capacity because I've got an inventory of yarn while my yarn making capacity is under a refurbishment program. Well, speaking of the yarn itself I mean obviously uh, Australia sells a lot of wool to Italy as well, so there's probably a chance that some of this wool is Australian wool in the first place. Well, it was interesting. The mill we bought it from supplied a lot of top-end woolen products into the top brands and the top couturiers of uh, the world's fashion industry. So uh, we, we, we find it interesting when we're going through it and putting it together and someone will make a comment saying, hey, I saw that on such and such a brand, and we do the research and we go, yeah, I'm pretty sure that yarn was in those products. <laughs> Speaking of as well, how common is this practice of buying up the end-of-run stuff around the rest of the world? Obviously, we don't have much of that here in Australia at the moment outside of Waverley. Well, we don't, you know, but mainly because we haven't got a big textile industry anymore. It, uh, it, is, it is 
it is common, but most mills now will probably consume it back in their own own production. There's a market, there's a strong market for end of run in England and Wales and Scotland, but they are using coarser wools over there from their European breeds. In Italy, where they went for the finer, better wools, a lot of Australian wools and that, is why we seized on this opportunity, because we knew we had a really good idea what we could make out of it and make a product that was complementary to our brand, the Waverley brand. And then just lastly, was there much competition for the wool when you went into bidding for it? It was right right at the start of the pandemic, and there's a lot of mayhem going on. A lot of people weren't knowing where, where opportunity was, or was it opportunity or was it liability? But it turned out we identified it as opportunity and turned it into better opportunity. No, there wasn't a lot of competition, but like any opportunities like this, you need to move quickly. Waverley Woolen Mills Executive Director David Farley there speaking with Luke Radford about the yarn they saved from being buried in a pit. And that's all we have time for. On Countrywide, you can catch up on more stories online at abc.net.au slash rural. I'm Killy Johnson. Thanks again for your company. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.